Tell your mayor to throw away the begging bowl. And Australia throws a tantrum while Indonesia acts like the adult. Coming up in this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 12th of August 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher and debunker-in-chief Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. Um, in this week's Citizens Report, we're going to be talking about an alternative way to properly fund the services and infrastructure that local government is responsible for in Australia. Um, and you may guess, if you're a regular follower of the show, you may guess what that might be. Um, and we're going to talk about the latest insanity vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Australia and China and the question of whether we actually want peace or war in the Pacific. And something that most people probably are, are really aware of, Richard, is what um, uh, Indonesia's view of it is, which is supposedly our best friend, you know, our new bestie. We want Indonesia to be our new bestie. They have a view that might surprise some Australians. All right. So before we get into it, just remember... Um, Help us get the show around. Like the show, that's very important. Uh, subscribe if you're not a subscriber. If you do subscribe, make sure you hit the bell icon. Um, share it as widely as you can and also comment. The, the commenting part is very important. Let's get a conversation going. Um, and when I can, I try and participate and encourage other people to participate. So you can ask questions there, make comments, etc. It's It's a good part of the process. Um, before we begin, we're going to talk about our pet subject in a minute. But um, which is a postal bank, right? Uh, but I've got an, I have an announcement. On the 7th of September, midday, the 7th of September, there will be a forum in the Australian Parliament hosted by Senator Jared Rennick and maybe some other members of Parliament on a postal bank. And that forum will be addressed by a former Cabinet Minister from New Zealand, Matt Robson, who I interviewed on our show uh, a few weeks ago on how New Zealand set up its postal bank, Kiwi Bank, what went right, what went wrong, but um, what went wrong is not a reflection on the bank, it's a reflection on the politics. So Matt will be able to explain that. The forum is in Parliament so the politicians can come along, the staffers can come along, the media can come along. and We'll have representatives there of constituent groups who support the bank for the various reasons that the bank can benefit them. The licensed post office group will be represented there, um, the people who run our post offices who, you know, um, uh, the, the future of Australia Post would be secured by combining postal services and banking services. We, we're going to have people representing the towns that are losing their bank branches, um, uh, hopefully small business people, hopefully seniors, uh, different constituencies that are all affected by the way banking operates in Australia at the moment, and would, which would be solved by having a postal bank. So we will keep um, you informed about how this, this, um, this event unfolds. It'll be very, very significant event in the building to educate those in the buildings of the benefit of this policy because we are determined to get this passed, right, and make Australia better by, um, well, in a way we're about to go through actually. I won't, let, let's, let's just get to the main story so people can see a, a practical example of what a postal bank can do. So first, let's do that. Tell your mayor to throw away the begging bowl. And uh, Richard, uh, when I was a kid, I loved... I remember at school I watched the musical Oliver mm -hmm. and uh, uh, think of little Oliver in the first scene when he draws a short straw and takes that bowl up to, um, what was it, Harry Seacombe, I think, 
please, sir, may I have some more? That is your mayor. That is your council. That's how Australian councils have to operate. They have to beg for the money they need to run the services that they're responsible and the infrastructure they're responsible for. Um, now, we've, we've done quite a bit of work on this this year on the, the way councils operate in Australia. And some of it was motivated by what happened in Lismore, right? Mm-hmm. And, and th- that kind of, when you have a, a big catastrophic event like that, um, what, you know, these things happen. The question is, what is done to, to um, rebuild afterwards? How does that work? And poor old Lismore has had the begging bowl out for six months now and st- it still hasn't been filled, right? And there has to be a better way. So part of our research, what we uncovered is this. Councils are responsible for more costs than ever, but they have less revenue than ever. Um, And by costs, here's something to consider. One third of all non-financial infrastructure assets in Australia, one third are the responsibility of local councils. And non-financial infrastructure is what you would consider infrastructure, Mm -hmm. right? Bridges, you know, roads, railways, uh, etc. there's this concept, uh, the first and last mile, mm. right? So that you can have a great highway project, right? And it's good for industry to have that highway or have that railway line. But if the road that the council's responsible for from the farm or from the factory is garbage and there's a bridge there that gets washed out or something, mm. then it doesn't matter how good your infrastructure is. There's a, there's a breakdown that goes on. Right? And this is repeated all around Australia. Um, you and I are from, from a part of Queensland <laughs> where a uh, lot of hills and gullies, etc. And if those bridges aren't maintained, whole, air, whole industrial areas get cut off. Oh, yeah. And there are still bridges built in the 1900s with wooden piles yep. and, and even wooden decks um, around Bundaberg and places like that. that yep. Yeah, they're fine, but they're not rated for heavy transport. Richard and I are from the uh, Apple Tree Creek Bigenden area around Childers in Queensland. There you go. Um, how did we end up here? <laughs> All right, long story. Okay, um, <clears throat> so that's, a pro- that's, that's, that's an example. They're responsible for lots and lots of local infrastructure. And when the bridge goes under, I'll give you an example of the bridge going under. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a new member of parliament. I've, I've been trying to call all the members of parliament. There's a new one. And when I called his office and said we want to talk about a postal bank, the guy, the volunteer on the phone said, oh, I support that. Oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah, oh, the banking at post office is very important. I used to bank, when I, where I used to live, I used to bank at the post office and the post office was in the local servo because it was such a tiny town. Um, and that's where you did your banking. But then one day the bridge was washed out and it took them two years to rebuild the bridge because there's never money, there's never enough money for, what, for a necessity like that, right? Took them two years to rebuild the bridge. By the time they rebuilt it, most of the town had, showed, had moved on, right? The servo had closed, etc. right? That's an example of what gets repeated around Australia in regional areas all the time. Um, so that's what local councils are responsible for. Uh, the value of the grants, now, uh, if anyone here watching this show is a property owner, you know that you fund local council because you pay rates. Um, but you don't fund all of your local council in most cases because local councils rely um, heavily on grants, state and federal grants. And this, without them, you would be paying a lot more rates. The value of federal grants 
to local councils has declined, and this was actually a Morrison government, Liberal government policy, from 1% of total Commonwealth tax revenue. So, so the total money the top Commonwealth government used to take, 1% was earmarked for grants to local councils. 1%. That's now half a percent or 0.55%. And with that, they're still going to maintain the one-third of all real infrastructure um, in Australia. Now, it's interesting, therefore, that most local governments seem to be doing an admirable job managing their finances. There are some exceptions. There are some governments in administration, etc. But, but by and large, at, local councils have a, in Australia have a reputation of managing their finances fairly well. They're not in huge financial difficulties. They balance their budgets. But they're actually not. Because what looks like good financial management is actually coming at the expense of properly maintaining their infrastructure. They don't have enough money to do it, so they don't do it. And, and let alone um, building or developing more infrastructure, right? Infrastructure is expensive, and it's a real problem for local government. Um, so there's a, there's a growing awareness out there. I'm going to cite some reports going back a decade now. There's a growing awareness out there that this is a problem, right? So, you know, you're, you're making your, your finances look good at the expense of the real world, right? This, this, is, this is an issue. I had a discussion, uh, Richard, with a, with a Shire president in a Western Australian Shire. Um, he told me that uh, he explained how much of a gap there is between their budget and what, what they would have to budget if they, if they properly looked after their infrastructure. Um, he said if his council budgeted to cover the cost of properly maintaining infrastructure, even though this is a council where most of its revenue comes from grants, Right? It's, it's, it's very dependent on grants. The, the, the local rates are nowhere near enough to cover just the basic functions of the council. So if they, if they raise the rates to cover cost, the cost of infrastructure, they would have to double the rates for all residents in that shire, double them. And he's, he just expressed it, he's the, he's the president, he just expressed for himself what doubling the rates would do to him, right? Mm -hmm. Totally crush him. And this is, you know, this is a problem. So so there's, there's one shire's explanation of just how much they're, they're not investing in infrastructure, right? It would, it would mean double the rates. So what do you have here? You have a downward spiral because without maintaining the infrastructure adequately, regions wither and die, and so there's even less council revenue to maintain the infrastructure and services they've got. You have depopulation in regional Australia, and this is a problem. We're going to put a, we're going to put a map on the screen now. This is um, SA2 population growth for 2001 to 2017, and, and trust me, it hasn't gotten any better. SA2 just means statistical area. This is an ABS thing, statistical area two. Um, they've defined areas by certain population um, uh, metrics, etc. The Ignore the big blue one up there in Western Australia, that's just the mining boom, right? That's not, and you know, that's, that's hardly representative of the rest of the country. Anything not in blue is depopulation in Australia, right? And the darker is the, the most depopulation, up to half of the population lost, half of it. Um, and that's what I mean by withering and dying. This is the story of regional Australia. How do you turn that around, right? Well, councils have to, you know, even if when they lose their population, they're still going to maintain their infrastructure as best they can, and that's where the begging bowl comes in. They go to the they go to the federal and state governments for grants, um, and like I said, in, in in some cases, in fact, a lot of cases, most of the revenue comes from um, grants. 
Now, on top of, the, at least the grants is, is not debt. On top of the grants, there is a way they can borrow money. And I'm not, I'm actually going to promote borrowing money in a minute. I'm not saying, you know, I'm, but, you know, everyone instinctively thinks that, that if it's not debt, that's better. And of course it is. But there's a limit to what the, the governments can do in that way. Um, uh, uh, they borrow money, but when they borrow money, they borrow via state government treasuries. And those state government treasuries sell bonds in Australia and overseas to fund those um, loans, right? And the, the, the local council is responsible for servicing those bonds, for meeting the regular payments on those bonds. So they would say that some, some accountants would say the system is working because the councils are in mostly in good financial shape. There are exceptions, like I said, but they're mostly in good financial shape, except it's not if they're not maintaining their, their infrastructure adequate. That's, that's what people have got to understand. Um, so we've written an article in this week's Australian Alert Service called uh, A Public Postal Bank Could Solve Financing Needs of Local Government. And we make the point there. I, I dug up these old reports. In 2014, one expert, and the guy's a real expert. He's based in South Australia. He's an expert in local government. He observed that Australian councils weren't borrowing enough. Um, now, you, you might think, if you're cynical about governments, oh, yeah, what does that mean, right? Well, let me give you, let me give you his figures. So his name's John Connery. He, he wrote a report called Debt is Not a Dirty Word. He said borrowings by local governments as a percentage of their revenue are very low on average in all jurisdictions. The national average as at 30 June 2012 was 27%. To put this in context, it can be thought of as somewhat similar to a household with a $60,000 annual income having a mortgage of $16,200 and no other debt. So that's, by any measure, if you've got a $60,000 income and all you owe is $16,200, you have with the right kind of you know, interest rate on a loan, et cetera, in the, in the right terms, you have capacity to borrow. And what are we talking about? We're talking about infrastructure. So mm-hmm. not talking about borrowing for you know, putting, putting your annual, um, your, your, your weekly shopping on the credit card. We're talking about the things that you as a household would borrow for. You, mm-hmm. you borrow to buy a car, right? You borrow to buy a house or an extension on the house, et cetera. The big ticket items... You don't say, well, some people do, but most people don't save up for them. You know that that's the sort of thing you borrow for. Our local councils aren't doing that, right? Um, and there's, there's actually some reasons you know, to do with, the, with government as well, but it, it, it's just stating the problem. They have capacity here to borrow. He added that on top of those figures I've given you, you can think of their assets against which they would borrow in the household's um, analogy as being worth $600,000. So they've got a household, they've got a house worth $600,000, income of $60,000, and they've only got debt of um, $16,200, right? Um, now, so they do have a way to borrow, which is through the state treasuries, but I want to point out the two problems. There's two particular issues with that form of borrowing. One is I noticed from, from the work I did, I looked at the Queensland Treasury Corporation, um, when, they, when they sell the bonds to fund local government borrowings in Queensland. Um, a quarter, often up to 40% of those bonds are sold overseas. What that means is when the people are making repayments, the councils are making repayments, the interest and principal is going back overseas, right? 
that is actually draining from Australia. And we would argue that's completely unnecessary. Yep. Especially when the currency exchange yep. rates change and, you know, like what happened in True. the 80s yeah, yeah. and then in 2008. Um, and then they're hedging against those with financial derivatives in a lot of cases and they get burned like they did in 2008, a lot of councils. Uh, 100%. Actually, I didn't put this in the article, but you're right to raise 2008 because against this, there's another phenomenon because councils have all these rules they've got to abide by that the state governments impose on them. Their savings, what, they, what, what comes under the category of savings, their investments are greater than their borrowings. Hmm. Councils earn more money from the investments they've made in interest than they pay in interest in Australia, on average. That's on average, right? And it, it blows my mind that that's the case. They're required by the government put money into investments. And in 2008, it was very risky investments, right? Collateralised debt obligations. Like councils all around the world, they were putting their ratepayers' money into the bonds that backed up, the derivatives that backed yeah. up the bonds on the poor people who were borrowing over in America. Yeah. Right? And, you know, in their defence, they'd been told, yeah, it's all fine, it's triple A rated. Triple A rated. No worries, yep. Yep. go ahead. And they all... And they all um, they all lost big time, but Australia was the one jurisdiction where um, the, the, the court ruled against Lehman Brothers on that, which was good. Um, but that's a, it's a, these, like whoever makes these rules for the councils, as far as I'm concerned, it's crazy. They should be, their priority should be looking after the services and infrastructure that we need as, as constituents. The other problem with the bonds process, uh, Richard, the way that they're structured, councils, councils get obligated to, you know, they've got a bond against the borrowings and, and they have to meet the, the, the periodic repayments mm. right, on bonds. And when you sell a bond, there's a coupon and there's the, there's the, the payment date and that's fine, you know, that's a, it's a legitimate way of doing it, except for councils that can really impinge on their cash flow because their cash flow is not uniform, yeah. right? And there's not, there's not very much flexibility there and it, be, it does become a burden um, on their cash flow. So then in 2012, Ernst & Young produced a report called Strong Foundations for Sustainable Local Infrastructure, Connecting Communities, Projects, Finance and Funds. And when I read this report, I nearly fell off my chair because its first recommendation, and the reason I nearly fell off my chair is I wasn't expecting this from one of the big four consulting firms like Ernst & Young, right? Its first recommendation was this. Our headline recommendation for the Australian government is that it investigates establishing a national financing authority for local government by a national body, a government body, to lend to local government. Building upon models which are successful overseas, the proposed financing authority would have a mandate to invest directly in local government programs by providing competitive and low-risk finance and to facilitate inward investment. The authority would have the ability to bundle approved council borrowings into a limited number of bond issues, which could be underwritten by the Australian government. I have just made contact with one of the authors of this report, because it's a report 10 years ago, and he confirmed to me what I thought. Um, <clears throat> they did all this work, produced this recommendation. I actually did it for Simon Crean, who was the relevant minister at the time in the Labor government. Where's it gone? Nowhere. Right? Now, and, and you know, there's been some changes, um, uh, but there's a, essentially the problem I'm describing is still the problem that was reflected in, in these reports. But here's the thing, Richard. Here they're calling for a national financing authority. We effectively had one once. Yep. You could think of it in those terms. We effectively had one once, a, a form of a national authority that would lend to local councils, and it was the Commonwealth Bank when it was the People's Bank. Yep. Right? That's what a bank can do. And let's just go through. I want to, I'm, I'm hoping um, our producer here, who's a clever guy, can put some uh, images on the screen as I'm describing this. 
But the Commonwealth Bank, in its first decade, um, started in 1912, it opened up in July 1st, 1912. In its first decade, which was documented in an official history of the Commonwealth Bank produced in, in 1923 by C.C. Faulkner, which is our source of this and the images you'll see are from that, are from that book. One of the th- it did a lot of things as a bank. It, is not, it was not the full-fledged, um, powerful national-slash-central bank that the Commonwealth Bank was in World War II. It was just a government-owned um, public bank, right? But it was effectively a postal bank. It operated, its, its first branches were through the post offices, right? But it's an example that with the right intention, because it's a public bank, the strength of a public bank is extraordinary. This is why Alexander Hamilton invested the, invented the concept you know, um, in the 1790s. The strength of it is extraordinary. And just operating the, to its fullest potential under its original governor, Dennison Miller, one of the things it did was become a mainstay for local government to borrow from. And what did, they, what did they borrow? Well, I'll just read you a quote from the book, The Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Um, it makes the point, the bank has granted, quote, the bank has granted loans to 60 councils in country districts to assist in developments and improvements. And what were they? Electrification, which allowed the establishment of butter factories, flour mills, sawmills and steel mills. One of the things they built that the Commonwealth Bank funded was an electricity plant for Newcastle, and that electricity plant allowed BHP's steel mill to expand in Newcastle. And if you know anything about Australian history, until from then until the year 2000, when they scrapped it, BHP's steel works in Newcastle was the centre of Australian industry, um, thanks to these early investments made by effectively what was a postal bank. Uh, road construction... And an example of the roads that had helped local councils fund was the wheat belt in Western Australia, which up until that point, I mean, this is the wheat belt in WA is the biggest part of Australia's wheat production to this day. But up to, to that point, it was dirt roads. So they, they built paved roads in the WA wheat belt yeah. to allow that wheat to go to market. Yeah, in those first and last miles you were talking about. First and la- exactly, the first and last miles. Um, you drive through there, these massive piles of wheat on the side of the road covered with tarps and whatever and... and um, uh, you know, it's got to get to where it's got to go. Um, so that was one of the things that funded. Uh, bridges, of course, you know, no-brainer, drainage, um, gas and electric lighting for towns, tramways for towns, even council chambers and town halls, sanitation for towns, harbour improvements for, for local areas, etc., and more. And that's, like I said, when the Commonwealth Bank was effectively a postal bank. And we have here um, in the... We can put this on the screen as well. In, in the article, in the alert, we... we um, i use my glasses here. Uh, we, 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 we put up this table from the, from the book where the total, the total borrowing to that point, the total lending from the Commonwealth Bank in, dollar, in pound and shilling terms in those days was £9,360,000 to the 60 local councils for this infrastructure, Right. That's what it did, with you know, just as a no-frills public bank, mm, the that, Commonwealth Bank was. And that's, I don't know what the, what the equivalent <clears throat> now in dollars would be, but, it's, but it'd be in the tens of billions. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that, you, you gotta, it made a huge difference for Australia, right? It had the capacity to um, do that. It's the power of public banking. <clears throat> now, let me make another couple of other points. If you do it this way, you don't have to borrow from overseas. 
you're using the deposits that your bank will attract, right? And you're putting those deposits to work. So you're, and, and the deposits are guaranteed. So you're a, you're a person in the country town that's been screwed over by all the, all the, uh, the, the private banks leaving town, right? Um, we set up a public bank through the post offices. You go there and you put your deposits in that public bank. Not only are they safe, but your money is helping develop your area. You're, you're putting your money in the bank helps build the local bridge that your area depends on. And that's the other point um, I wanted to make because it, the, these development is, what, is what's necessary to turn, the, to turn the rural depopulation around, right? Um, because it's flexible and affordable, that's the other thing that, that, that a, a bank can do. It can be flexible in the way it manages extending credit to local councils. It can help them through the periods of low cash flow, mm. right? And say, so, yeah, okay, you don't have to make a payment this month or this quarter, We'll get you when all the rates come in, you know, at the end of the year or whatever, right? We'll do it then. We will carry that in the meantime because we are the bank owned by the people of Australia. We can do that. Yep. We're not here to make a maximum profit every single day of the year. Yeah, and uh, can do the same thing for local, you know, for farmers, for local industries and so on. Well, exactly. The, the, while it's doing everything, we're saying it can do for councils, it can do for industry and whatever. Like, which is what the original Commonwealth Bank did. We, we're just focused on this one part, but yeah, it can do. It has enormous capacity, um, and therefore, if councils, Richard, have, have a source of credit that's that's affordable and flexible like this, they can be thinking, yeah, let's make sure we maintain our infrastructure mm. so that we um, keep the industries. The industries that depend on this area um, can rely on their infrastructure, right? And, and, and um, they don't get disrupted by the problems that can happen. And hey, let's develop more infrastructure and attract more people mm. back into the regions. Yep. And in the case of Lismore that you mentioned earlier, well, they could have built the taller mm. levy bank like they'd proposed to yep. do and the yep. town wouldn't have washed away this year. For want of a nail, mm -hmm. the kingdom was lost. Right, so here's the councils in Lismore for years have been saying, "Oh, there's an idea. Should we do it? Shouldn't we do it?" And when they're thinking, "Should we do it? Shouldn't we do it?" Money is part of the equation, right? And then, boom, this comes along, right? And look, it's just it's just a no-brainer. Why don't we do it? This is the thing. So people people might be thinking, "Robbie, you're making this sound like you know Nirvana, Pollyanna. Like, surely there must be a downside." Yeah, there's only one downside. Private banks don't want the public to know that banking can benefit you. <laughs> they want you, in the, as, the, as the person in the public, to expect that um, you know, there are evils in the world you can't do anything about. And one of those is banking. And yet, I've got to use the, the banks are a necessary evil, I've got to use it. And whenever I hear them ripping people off, I'm not going to be surprised. Whenever I hear them making, what's, what's, what's Commonwealth Bank's profit this $9.6 billion? $9.6 billion, you think, oh yeah, that's the banks, right? You ex we've, we've become conditioned to expect that. We're like slaves in the field, expecting this is our lot in life, that's our expectation. And they do not want you to know that, hey, a bank doesn't have to work that way. Banks are, have an incredible capacity, that's why banking licences are so valuable. Um, they have incredible capacity and they can use, a public bank can be used for the common good. Right, and if you want to, if you want something, you can look up about it. Um, uh, a modern example of one that is working: look at the Bank of North Dakota in the United States. North Dakota is the only state in America with a, with its own state bank, a public bank, and it's the only state that hasn't gone bankrupt in the in the recent times and hasn't 
got into the red, it stayed in the black, etc. because this bank, the Bank of North Dakota is able, the, the, the government of North Dakota is able to use this bank to make sure its local economy works. That's what a public bank can do. And of course, the private banks do not want that to get out. And we saw it, um, uh, remember in 2014, Joe Hockey tried to blame the global financial crisis, sorry, 2009 it was, Joe Hockey tried to blame the global financial crisis on government involvement in banking, right? <laughs> government shouldn't be involved in banking. And one of our, did you see that yesterday, one of our um, activists in Queensland was going around uh, talking to state members of parliament about the postal bank mm-hmm. and one liberal, like, like, a, he'd, he'd, like a button had been pushed on his you know, toy body with, yeah, a, with yeah, a recording there. pulled the string. And... Pulled the string and he said repeatedly government shouldn't be involved in banking. Government shouldn't be involved in banking. Well, we know who's, who thinks that, mate, and it's not the Australian people. It's the banks who don't want competition. Anyway, so um, you got any observations that you'd like to add to all that? No, I think you covered it. Well, look, I hope you get the point on this one particular case. We're doing lots of work on all these different areas that, that our policy can benefit. Um, come to, like, I can't say come to this event in, in Parliament. It's, it's not going to be... There won't be enough room for everyone to come. Tell your member of parliament to go to the event, the forum in the parliament on the 7th of September to discuss a postal bank, right? Let's get this, every politician in Australia educated on this. And when they're educated on it and they see the benefit and they're struggling to find the, um, the downside, then let's draw the banks out of the, out of the woodwork because mm. then they'll come out swinging and then the public will see that it's, there's one constituency that's opposed to this, and then it's up to the, 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 the politician to decide to take a side. Will they side with the people or with the banks? And I can tell you something now, any politician with intelligence will know that no politician has ever lost a vote taking on the banks, <laughs> fighting the banks, right? So that's, this is, um, yeah, this is, this is a, a, an event to look forward to. We'll keep you posted as we go forward. All right, Richard, let's move on because now we're going to get onto something that's not positive at all. It is really, really um, damn serious. And this is where you can, this is why I got you on the show, so you can do more of the talking. <laughs> Australia throws a tantrum while Indonesia acts like an adult. We're going to cover the tantrum first. And it's not just a tantrum, it's, a tan- it's like a to- tantrum, tantrum throwing toddler with a gun. And the gun, though, is nuclear submarines. Yep. Right? So, Bill, let's talk about the tantrum first. This tantrum was on display this week in the most disgusting way um, possible when the Chinese ambassador addressed the National Press Club on Wednesday. Now, um, I'm hoping the majority of people watching this have heard the hysterical new media reporting about this. And what you're probably thinking is he went in there with breathing fire, right, eyes flashing to lash Australia for our belligerence and, and you know, and our um, defiance for you know, China's supreme authority. Everything you have heard about this event from the mainstream media, every word is utter, utter garbage. Utter garbage. I watched it. It's garbage. Um, the Australian media worked as a pack this week to deliberately distort the reality of what went on at that event. Um, and it's such a dangerous thing, Richard, because <sighs> we're always discussing as part of what we do in the editorial function of our organisation, we're always trying to figure out, you know, what are our politicians up to? Mm -hmm. You know, 
Are they genuine? Aren't they genuine? We sometimes agree, we sometimes disagree, uh, etc. And it's, you know, it's all you're trying to figure it out and we're trying to influence it. But would you agree that does, with the best intentions, sometimes you can have politicians with the best intentions, the media can come along and just smash it in the way they yeah. choose to report the stuff. Yeah, well, um, you get enough of the public baying for blood, you know. I mean, the one we've always said, the one thing politicians are more scared of than their, than their party bosses and donors is the, is the people with the pitchforks, ultimately. Yep. yep. Um, and that can, that can be a good thing or a very bad thing. And in this case, yeah, the media is um, all singing from the same hymn sheet. They've all got their instructions from probably the same handful of people. Um, I'll give you the one I was surprised at, The Guardian. Catherine Murphy in The Guardian called this a fiery speech. Now, She sorry, can't have watched it. I, of course not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sorry. I'm not surprised, but only because of what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in the United yeah. Kingdom. Yep. There was once a time you would have expected The Guardian to take a different view than there's ferals in the, the Australian newspaper, etc. Yep. But The Guardian, the ABC, the Murdoch Press and the Nine Press, all on the same page on this. Yeah, well, of course, since the guys who published uh, Snowden's material in 2013 have been drummed out, yep. um, The Guardian has just been another, just another um, liberal establishment rag, really. So, so here's, the, here's the parameters. We've got a new government. And I would say our new foreign minister is a fairly calm, measured person, right? That's, you know, and I, you would think it's better her being in the role than Peter Dutton. We would, we would probably both agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and, a, and, a, and a, at least rhetoric from our government that they want to, they use the term, I think, stabilise the relationship, right? So that's been the intention from Australia. And the Chinese have reciprocated that intention. They absolutely have. Penny Wong got to meet Wang Yi in Bali, right? Mm. And there is talk, and it came up at the press club, of um, Albanese getting to meet Xi Jinping. And remember for the last two years, the Chinese weren't talking to anybody. Yeah. And of right? course, the, the, the breakthrough, <clears throat> quote-unquote, was um, Richard Miles, the new Defence Minister and Deputy PM, meeting That's with right. yep. Yep. Um, the Defence Minister of China, General Wei, his name is. Yes. Um, but already, <laughs> every single one of those positive things, like Wang Wong meeting and, and Miles' meeting, the media here reaction gives you, you know, you yeah. could tell they, they just tried to turn it into something else, right? Well, that was a, a, um, a foretaste for what happened this week at the National Press Club. Because what the media know is they've got the politicians terrified by the McCarthyism that they have helped to generate in this country. McCarthyism created by them um, and certain think tanks like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and uh, 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 politicians like the Wolverines... Andrew Hasty, James Patterson, the late Kimberly Kitching, Anthony Byrne, who's no longer in Parliament, uh, etc. These people who ran our intelligence com committee, right, mm -hmm. and they were all in the pockets of the United States and the United Kingdom, you know, the, the Five Eyes um, apparatus. And that's the real issue. Five Eyes, which is the intelligence agencies of Australia, New Zealand, um, the United States, the United Kingdom and Canada, they, they, keep their, they keep information from the elected officials by saying, oh, sorry, we can't share that with you because... Um, this is classified by our partners, right? Mm -hmm. And they are running an operation to get every country to align um, with this, this shift that the Anglo-Americans have taken to confront China and push the world um, to a war. Now, I want to say this. The ambassador who was caricatured in this way this week, I've met him. I got to, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Canberra and I was invited to a major event at ANU. It was packed, lots and lots of people there. 
Um, and it was a concert. It was called the East Meets West Concert. It was sponsored by the Chinese Embassy. And there was a reception at the beginning, at the start of it. And I was at the reception and the ambassador came in and um, was being introduced around. And I got to meet him. Um, and I said to him, uh, well, and then in, in the, in the uh, intermission, I bumped into him again. And I said, you sh- this, I mean, the concert, Richard, was brilliant. It was, this was classical music, um, both Western and Chinese, mm-hmm. right? They had Chinese and Western singers on the stage. They had an, an orchestra that was mainly um, Australian. They had one of Australia's top conductors there. It was a beautiful um, event, and I was really moved participating in this. This was a musical display of an offer of friendship, right? And so when I bumped into the ambassador again in, in the intermission, I said, you should have invited all the politicians here. And all he said was, because, you know, he's a very diplomatic guy, he said, oh, do you think they would have come? <laughs> and then someone else told me that the previous event in 2021, they, that they had invited them all, nobody turned up. And on that night, I, if you call me a politician, I'm a, you know, part of a political party and I, uh, and I campaign. So by the definition of me being a politician, I was the only Australian politician at this event. You know why? Because the rest are scared. Mm-hmm. Because of this McCarthyite climate that the media have created. Um, so this, what I found in, in my quick discussion with him, he's a very calm guy, he's a very well, he's a very measured guy and he's very well spoken, right? His, his English is, is um, excellent. And he gave a great speech to the National Press Club just laying out what the reality is, what, what the situation is vis-a-vis Australia and, and um, China and what the positives are and what, what problems need to be resolved. But... It's as if, Richard, because he wasn't there to get down on bended knee and beg Australia's forgiveness for the last two years because China's entirely in the wrong and we're entirely in the right, these journos lined up one at a time and they were from the feral Australian newspaper, which is a newspaper that campaigns for war. If you, if you watch the Ben Packham question from the Australian newspaper, his newspaper campaigned for their war crime of the 20s. They campaigned for the war. Right? You can't forget that with these people. Yeah, he was in followed, 2003. 2003 in, in Iraq. He was followed by Chris Yulman, who, who, who sets the nine um, news uh, agenda on this. His wife is a fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Board, board member, actually. Well, there you go. <laughs> board member at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is funded by the United States government to blow up Australia's relationship with China. And he gets up there and asks a belligerent question. And, and suddenly... Instead of being treated normally, the, the, the ambassador's got one person after another just asking all these belligerent questions where we're not going to go through them all because we can't, we don't have time, but this, I know they're crap because you're the debunker-in-chief. <laughs> Every time they've come up over the last few years, I'll say, Richard, look into this for us, and, and you've debunked them. So let's just read, though, what someone who is eminently better qualified than me um, to make this observation said about it. And this person is Stephen Fitzgerald. And Stephen Fitzgerald was Australia's first ambassador to the United St- to the People's Republic of China, right? After we resumed relations in 1972, he was the first ambassador. I know the sec- I know his deputy. Mm-hmm. We know his deputy, John Lander, who I've interviewed on Citizens Insight a number of times. And in fact, right after the show, Richard, I'll be interviewing John Lander again, and I'm going to do an interview with John Lander about what this whole Taiwan kerfuffle was about. John has very definite. Very precise, very sharp insights into what's happened. So make sure that'll be put up next Wednesday. Make sure you tune in for that when you um, when we put it up. But Stephen Fitzgerald was his boss. He was the ambassador at the time. So he's been an Australian ambassador overseas into China. These are the people who built our relationship, which is now earning our country 
where in, in, in 2019, it was earning our country $68 billion a year. That was our trade surplus with China in 2019. It is now, thanks to inflation and all the price rises in commodities and whatever, mm. running at $120 billion a year. So when you weigh up the benefit of that economic relationship plus the absolute necessity that we should be doing everything we can to avoid war, you would think, let's actually try and approach this in the best faith, which is what the media set out to absolutely destroy. And here's what um, Stephen Fitzgerald said on that. He wrote in Pearls and Irritations this week, the Chinese ambassador and our ignorant and hostile media. We should be alarmed, if not ashamed, at how some of these journalists behaved and reported. The reporting on Chinese Ambassador Xiao Qian's address to the National Press Club revealed as much about the reporters themselves as it did about the content of the ambassador's remarks. His speech was friendly, conciliatory and constructive, not only highlighting the benefits of the economic relationship, but pressing Beijing's willingness to reset and stabilise our relations and listing a number of specific issues on which we can have new or enhanced collaboration. However, in the question and answers, pushed into a corner by aggressive and hostile media, he repeated the official government line on Taiwan, which as ambassador he must, but which most of these journalists breathlessly and sensationally reported as though it had never been said by any PRC official. Um, sorry, it had never been said before by any PRC official. That's the point I made. He said nothing that China hasn't said for 50 years, but the media were acting as if he just plucked a threat out of his... Um, out of thin air. So little do they, the media, actually know or seek to inform themselves about China. From the body language of some, and I noticed this as well, Richard, expressing obvious personal antipathy and animosity, one might speculate that they had already composed the headlines and much of their reporting before the event. Well, if Stephen Fitzgerald's happy to speculate that, I'm happy to assert it because they absolutely did. They went there with an agenda and their agenda is going to lead us to war. So that's the tantrum we've thrown. I want to throw to you now, Richard, because you've written a very important article, somewhat technical, but let's not get into the technical details of it this week, um, uh, on, on something people need to know about. As a nation, the contrast to China is, is we're trying to become friends with Indonesia. Mm. And it's clearly a divide and conquer geopolitical ploy, but whatever. But anyway, so, so we're going to be telling people how great Indonesia is, etc., as a balance against China. However, by their actions, tell people how, how, what does Indonesia think of how we are acting in terms of our contribution to peace in the region? Yeah, well, I mean, I assume everyone's heard of the AUKUS deal, <laughs> the Australia, UK, US security pact that involves all this in, you know, uh, technology sharing, the key feature of which is that we're allegedly, supposedly, someday going to get American <laughs> nuclear submarines, or possibly British, but with American uh, reactors fueled by weapons-grade uranium. The reason, highly enriched explain, uranium. Ex so, that, now, so they don't have to be right, but there's, a, there's be, a reason in our case. Yeah. What is so, it? So because nuclear power is illegal here, and they were never going to get labor, I mean, they probably would have really, but... America only uses these HEU, high-enriched uranium reactors, in its submarines. Um, they, the only country they ever shared those with before was Great Britain in 1958. Ooh. And that was 
before the nuclear non the, the non proliferation of nuclear weapons treaty in 1968. Because highly enriched uranium can be used for a bomb, yeah. but what normal uranium that's that's for nuclear plants can't yeah. be used for a bomb. Yeah, yeah. So they enrich it to. I won't go into all the percentages, yeah. but it's about a quarter of the level of fissionable uranium um, in a low enriched uranium reactor, and that's what the French nuclear submarines that our the ones we were going to buy, the diesel electric ones modelled on those, that's what they run on. Right. So they have to be refuelled uh, within the service life of the ship, of the submarine, and therefore you need... Not domestic, very often, but... But they, the do, but they yeah. do need maintenance and refuelling. Yeah, yeah. So therefore you need a domestic nuclear industry to sustain those. We don't have that. It's illegal here. Um, mm. uh, in, in most states and federally as well. So, Meanwhile, we're trying to cut carbon emissions, just not effectively, because yeah, we yeah, refuse yeah. to go nuclear. But anyway, put that aside. So, <laughs> so the thing, so when Morrison, Morrison justified dumping the French deal with no notice to the French, which, you know, yeah. um, by saying, well, on the one hand, this is all, you know, highly secretive, highly classified negotiations and blah, 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 which, okay, perhaps they are. But on the other, that we would always have preferred nuclear submarines, but we couldn't have them because we don't have a nuclear industry, because it's illegal, because there's no low-enriched uranium reactors that would last the service life of the boat. So... The solution is highly enriched uranium. Yeah, so, so we, but now we've been offered these, you know, we're so special and privileged and important that we get offered these nuclear reactors, sealed nuclear reactors to drop into these new ships, these new submarines from the Americans and so we're going to use those, and then we're going to be able to, you know, give China what for, and it'll, <laughs> all the stupid things. Yeah. So the Indonesians, of course, they weren't told either. Nobody in the, in the, you know, very close and important Pacific family, or the, or the, you know, the people we're trying to, the countries we're trying to just, draw just, into a coalition. Just, yeah. Just hold that thought. I want you to say exactly what you're about to say, but I want to make the point. Yeah. The assumption in Australia is. Um, we don't, we're not the threat in the Pacific. Hmm. We're not doing anything. It's, China's the one that's being threatened. But what you're about to say um, proves that that's completely wrong. Because what, 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 what the, what's the Indonesian view? Well, they took one look at it and said, well, this is, this is a legal loophole that you're exploiting in the, in the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And we want to close it because we don't want a war with China and we don't want these things in our waters. We don't, we don't want any of this happening you know now australia has said yeah. and the and the international atomic energy agency director rafael grossi was out here um early, uh, late last month early this month um to negotiate these arrangements for making sure that stuff doesn't get diverted across into nuclear weapons and you know because it gets removed from iaea scrutiny when it gets used for military non-explosive purposes we undertook as part of the npt never to d develop or possess nuclear weapons um, and the NPT also guarantees, um, as an inalienable right for every every country, the um, peaceful use of nuclear power. So, but, if we, but there's a grey area there that we're exploiting to get these. Hang on, just hold, hold that thought again. So, if we had a nuclear power industry in Australia, Richard, the IAEA, International um, Energy Agency, what is it? International Atomic, Atomic Energy, Energy Agency. Agency, International Atomic Energy Agency, would have a supervisory role and make sure yeah. that. All the uranium is accounted for, and it could never be diverted into nuclear bombs. Hmm. But because, and but because we say nuclear is the most evil thing ever, 
and that the Australian people, even though we have one third of the world's uranium, we're not able to ever use nuclear power. But now both the same politicians that are telling you that are saying, oh, but we're happy to have nuclear submarines. Mm. That creates a screen by, under which the IEA cannot ascertain what we're doing with it. They just have to accept, they and the whole world have to accept on faith that we, sweet, innocent little Australia, mm. which fights with America in every war and illegal invasion it does, right? Why should they, anyone ever doubt us? That we would never do anything bad with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other side of it is that the Americans can use whatever they're supplying to us as a way to divert weapons-grade uranium into other purposes, potentially, which is the other concern that they've raised. And the Chinese have raised these same concerns almost word for word. I looked at that. There's a conference going on all this month right. in New York at the UN. Uh, one of the, it's, it's not because of this. It's a regular review process of the NPT. Um, but both the Chinese and the Indonesians, and Indonesia on behalf, basically, unofficially, but everyone understands it to be on behalf of the entire non-aligned movement. And that's which, a big deal, that's right? The, that's 120 countries that refuse to take sides in the original Cold War and aren't particularly interested in this one either. So, um, what, so Indonesia is taking us to the UN, and it is backed, effectively backed by 120 countries of the non-aligned movement. Yeah, plus China. Plus China. Um, saying, look... You've got to close this legal loophole over, new, over naval propulsion. Yeah. Now, they're not even necessarily saying you cannot have nuclear submarines. But they're saying, look, this is, this is an unacceptable grey area, this, this action. Nobody's ever done this before, as um, uh, an arms control expert from Melbourne here, Dr Trevor Findlay, wrote in a paper for the um, campaign to abolish nuclear weapons earlier this year. He said, look, um, there are no rules to follow. You know, we're, we're making this up as we go along, basically. Um, or the Americans are making it up for us, more to the point. But um, meanwhile, a group of American experts, former government officials involved in arms control and, uh, and uh, as well as um, academics and others, you know, have come at it mm. from, from the other side um, from wanting to get rid of this stuff. But they've all been involved in the arms control negotiations going back decades. Um, these guys uh, proposed that, well, since you're developing new submarines anyway, all you have to do, America has these nuclear fast attack submarines that ours are presumed that we're either going to get or, we, or ours are going to be based on if they're made any time in the next decade or so, which they won't be, but mm. um, called a Virginia-class submarine. Back in 1995, the... U.S. Naval Reactors Office, which is a joint departmental office run, it's, it's run jointly by the Department of Energy, the Defense Department, it interfaces with the national security apparatus and so on, as it should, but they, they testified to Congress in 1995, if you made, if you made, just, uh, made the diameter of the Virginia-class submarines one metre larger, you could, you could put, even with current fuel technology, mm -hmm you could put a low enriched uranium life of ship reactor in there and we could be getting those now. Or given we were buying a, a modified design from the French right. anyway, yeah. based on a nuclear submarine that runs on LEU reactors, yeah. well, we could have just said to them, hey, build it a bit bigger so that we can have a life of ship reactor in there because we don't have a domestic um, nuclear industry. So and so. So we could have solved. done that. Problem solved. There would have been no problem. So what is this AUKUS thing actually for? And that's what everyone's. That's why everyone's saying, "Look, close this loophole. Get scrutiny in place. Get, you know, get some 
fixed rules on naval propulsion finally after all these years yeah. because this is this is an unacceptable threat to um, to the non-proliferation regime, which Australia pretends to be a champion of, hypocritically, given that we our entire strategic policy is based on being under the U.S. nuclear umbrella, umbrella, even though we're probably actually not, according to our friend John Lander, um, and others who would you know in a position to theorise that. Yeah, there's no guarantee it would come to um, us. So yeah, so you so the bottom line, Australians might be a bit shocked to um, to recognise. Uh, uh, Richard, that us saying trust us doesn't cut it no. in international affairs. No, not, not after the last 30 years. No, exactly. And, and it likely wouldn't either. And just one last question, because we're actually we're way over time here, but one last question. If we, did it, if we did this the way that's currently planned and that the Indonesians are criticising, etc., and we eventually get these fictitious submarines and whatnot, um, would we allow international weapons inspectors to come in to those submarines and, 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 and confirm that they're not being used for um, you know, proliferating nuclear weapons? Would the Americans allow us to do that? Um, I suspect not. Um, so, so Scott Morrison thought it was eminently reasonable that we demand China allow inspectors into China with the equivalent of weapons inspectors' powers right, mm -hmm. to... to uh, you know, find the source of, of coronavirus because, of course, you can't trust the, them. And that's just something that can break out anywhere. This is really serious stuff. This is what can destroy the world. Um, and, yeah, we would, we, would ne we would never allow that to happen if the, if the shoe was on the other foot. Um, all right, well, look, uh, so sometimes Australians, you've got to acknowledge that, um, thank God, we live in a part of the world where there are people prepared to be adults. We could, we've been adults in the past. We should be adults, but in, under our current foreign policy, we are not the adults in the room. We are the troublemakers. Yep, the monkey with a hand grenade. Monkey with a hand grenade. All right, Richard, uh, thank you very much for appearing on the show today. Um, thanks to the viewer for uh, tuning in and bearing with us for all this time. Remember what I said about the event on the 7th of September in um, Parliament on the Postal Bank. So sp spread the word to your local members of Parliament about that. We'll put out press releases, etc., that you can utilise. Um, let's get the word out there. There is a solution in the offing on the economy. And join the chorus of, of voices that have to demand to our government, we do not want to go to war. We have to change the way we're acting. And don't believe anything you read in the Australian news media. <laughs> What's the Citizens Report? Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for more. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.